You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together on this Lord's Day. Thank you for um, an opportunity like this to gather around your word and to think thoughts after you. I pray that you'll give us wisdom as we lean into these things. I pray that you'll give the teacher wisdom as he teaches. And for those who are here to learn that all of us, Lord, would be um, under uh, your gracious view. Holy Spirit, be our teacher, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Come on in. Hey, how are you all? Oh, thank you. It's part of my my teaching neurosis. Like doors open, make me nervous. I don't know why that is, but I... um, all right. So last week we we moved into Ecclesiastes three, and I don't think we actually got to do a lot with Ecclesiastes three. So I'm going to make this brief because um, my my goal today is to kind of do a, a brief overview of four. Lean pretty heavily into chapter five because I think chapter five functions as a little bit of a bridge in the book, um, and then and then move into chapter six as well. So that's that's a tall order. We'll see we'll see what happens. Um, but when you look at Ecclesiastes chapter three, and and if anyone knows the book of Ecclesiastes, or if there's or if there are parts of Ecclesiastes that register somewhere in the memory. Um, it has to be Ecclesiastes chapter three, right? A time to be born, a time to die. It's hard not to hear the music with that when you you know hear this. Time to plan, a time to pluck up, a uh, time for every purpose under heaven. Oh, that's not in here. That was John Lennon, but that was it's. Um, was he the one that did that? That was John Lennon, right? Oh goodness gracious! Never. I should I should know not to do pop culture references. I'm going to fail every time. Um, all right, so. Uh, this is the, that's that particular move here in, in verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So, of course, we, we know how this, this, these particular, this particular poet, poem here has been used within sort of popular music culture, but what's, what's Kohelet after? What's the preacher after here? The preacher is trying to give you a sense of the balance of time and the balance of, of um, particular activities and moments of our existence. And to give you a view as he moves into this in the next few verses that God has all of this planned out. That in other words, the movement of time, there's a time for war, there's a time for peace, there's a time for laughter, there's a time for sorrow. That the balance of time as it relates to particular moments that we enter into is something that's found within the all-seeing sovereign eye of God. God shapes time and he shapes our experience of time. Um, and again, I think we need to be careful here to not necessarily view that as overly determinative so that it eviscerates human agency. We're still agents that move in this world and make decisions. But when it comes to the ordering of time, nothing is catching God by surprise. I think that's the point. Um, that, uh, that, that, I'll say this. That's one perspective, especially in the wisdom literature, that really never comes into critical view, namely that God understands and God oversees all that's happening. And it's that particular affirmation and confession of faith about the being of God that I think creates all kinds of existential crises that the, that the Bible allows us to lean into. 
like the book of Job. I mean, isn't it? Now, I know this is a little bit disturbing, but at least from one perspective, we can affirm that the book of Job never questions that God is overseeing Job's suffering. And he's involved in that. That's, that's never up for debate among the friends either as they enter into these multiple chapters that are wrestling with the cause of, of Job's suffering. That's never a question. The question is, Job, what did you do? You must have done something really bad uh, to make God uh, upset like this at you. And that's the point of contention between Job and his friends. Job hadn't really done anything really bad to, to cause the ire of God to come on him in the way in which it did. But no one ever questioned the sovereign reach and view of God as it comes to uh, particular human events. And what I appreciate about the Bible, um, and we're going to see this today as we move from chapter 5 into chapter 6, one of the things I like about the Bible and appreciate about it is it doesn't necessarily resolve that tension for us. It, it just calls us to lean into it. Um, it calls us to lean into the reality that there are two views, uh, two perspectives when it comes to World events and even personal individual events. And that is, there's a kind of bottom-up view where we have our perspective looking at it and that can lead to all kinds of confusion and difficulty when it comes to figuring out what God's providence is. Um, I think this is one of those things where we all have to take sort of heaping spoonfuls of humility when we look at world events and try to read a certain providence off of the surface account of these things. The reason, I mean, don't you remember the scuttlebutt over um, a, a big-name preacher giving a, a particular cause for why Katrina hurt and hit New Orleans? Remember that came out? And then everybody's like, ah, don't say that. And what was my reaction? Ah, don't say that, right? Um, because even if it's true, uh, a human take on that should be one that's loaded with humility and modesty because the bottom-up view is a certain kind of understanding that we can't always put things together. We can't always weave together a satisfying narrative that we can give answer A, uh, this is the cause that led to reality B. We can't always do that. And this is where uh, the, uh, a Kohelet goes after this. Look at the next few verses. What uh, gain... As a worker from his toil, I've seen this. Then he goes on to say he's put eternity into man's heart, yet, and this is the challenge, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning uh, to the end. You hear that? That's the bottom-up perspective. What, what you have in the poem, the famous poem, is a certain kind of balance of nature. A recognition that there's a balance of nature that I think within the ancient Near Eastern mindset one could read off the balance of nature an understanding of reality and an understanding of God's purposes. So there was a kind of mirror of nature and natural realities that then, then humanity was, was viewing this and could put together an understanding of the world from that perspective that was on par with God's own self-understanding. And here you have the author to Ecclesiastes saying, we can't do that. We will affirm that there's a balance to the natural order that's within the purview of God and that nothing catches God by surprise. Now, I think this is really important. We're going to talk about this a lot today. It's really important, I think, to affirm on some level and to find hope. Now, there's a terror side to this, I will admit, but to also find hope from the standpoint that nothing catches God by surprise and God is never twiddling his thumbs wondering what's going to happen next. Never. 
Why? Because, again, this is the view that the Bible presents to us of God. For God, time, past, present, and future is always equally present to God in His being. He's not awaiting for something to develop because the future is already present to God in its fullness because He is. You and I, we're in movement. We can't help it. We can't transcend the linear reality of our existence. We just can't do it. Um, we live in, in the kind of movement of past and future. Um, whereas God, and at least this is how the classic Christian tradition has presented it, and I realize there are challenges here, but God is an eternal present with past, present, and future always there with Him. I've been wrestling with this. I'm not, I'm not settled in my mind. But I've been wrestling with these things even as it pertains, for example, to something like the singularity this is really important. Matter of fact, in our liturgy that you, I'm going to the 11 o'clock today, but the you, I think Eucharist today, right? In the nine, um, in, in the nine o'clock Eucharist service, you all use the language, what you just prayed together, that describe the atoning activity of Jesus Christ as once and for all. You remember that? Once and for all, one oblation. Um, he did it once, then and there. I mean, this is very much part of the language of our of our prayer book tradition. So we realize that when it comes to the atoning work of Jesus, the historical activity of Jesus on the cross is singularly important. It's a historical fact. It's a historical reality. And yet at the same time, there is a kind of trans-historical character to what Jesus did on the cross. Um, he's the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Um, Revelation chapter 5, I began to weep because no one was worthy to open up the scroll and to read it. And then someone said, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. And I turned and saw on the throne, he turned to see a lion. But you remember what John saw when he turned to see the lion? A lamb bearing the marks of one who had been slain. So there's a sense in which Jesus, in his historical particularity, in that moment in time, did something unique there. But the uniqueness of that in God's eternal being, I can't parse all this out for you, I'm sorry, but in His eternal being, we recognize that He's the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, and in His future reality in heaven now, He still bears the mark of His singular sacrifice eternally in His person. So I think that's part of the dynamic of entering into the tension of time. Our experience of time and God's experience of time as being related but not co-equal. And, and here's another aspect, too, that I think is really important. God's self-knowledge and our knowledge of God um, are never to be equated as the same. God knows Himself in ways that we do not know. And by the way, I'll just go and say this. God knows Himself in ways that we will never fully know. Um, now, that doesn't mean that our knowledge of God isn't true and real. I don't believe God's equivocating when He gives us His Word. He's revealing Himself. But there's a sense in which we recognize, right, that our full knowledge of God is never on the same plane of God's knowledge of Himself. Um, this is one of you know those stories from the tradition. Um, apparently, you have Thomas Aquinas. Have you heard this story before about how Aquinas ended his writing ministry? Um, I've mentioned to you that I've got a colleague at uh, Beeson who's got a t-shirt. This is theology humor. Humor only goes so far. Um, but uh, he's got a t-shirt that his, his kids got him for Christmas, and it says Thomas Aquinas. Have you seen this? Stokes, you'll like this. The, the original deep fat friar. Have you seen that? Um, anyway, that, that theology humor. It only goes so far. Um, 
But, you, but the story, I read a biography on Aquinas by Dennis Turner a few years back, and apparently the story's true. You know, here, and I've got these volumes on my shelf. You know, you have Aquinas writing the Summa, which is probably one of the greatest bodies of divinity ever produced in the history of the church, where, where, however you sort of feel about Thomas Aquinas. And, and, and I'm softening to him. I, I, I used to be kind of angularly against him, but I'm softening to Aquinas. Um, massive volumes of the Summa on the shelf. Apparently, he, the last thing that he had to write on was something like eschatology. Um, so from what Turner said, if my memory serves me correctly, Aquinas had something like six months left, and his writing project would have probably been done. The Summa would have been completed, which is remarkable. Um, and according to all accounts, Aquinas has some kind of beatific vision has some kind of encounter with the divine in his monastic setting there as, as a Dominican friar and um, has some encounter with the risen Lord. So he said, and after that, what does Aquinas say? With what I've just experienced and what I've seen, I will never write again. And we're talking about one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. And I, I don't know if you've ever spent time with Aquinas, but go, it's all free online. Go, go just read one little section where Aquinas will give um, a theological proposition, three objections to that theological proposition, then three answers to the objection of that theological proposition. And you'll read this, the said contra, and you'll go through it, and you'll think, gosh, it seems kind of straightforward, and then you'll read it again, and you realize, oh, this is actually pretty difficult, and then you'll read it a third time, and you go, this is brilliant. I mean, whether you agree with the kind of scholastic method or not, you realize that this is something other. Or to put it in terms on our... I, I couldn't do that, right? That's not something I could achieve. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Um, so, I mean, this is, again, the kind of recognition that we, we give our best efforts, given what God has given us, to speak truthfully about who God is, but always in a recognition that our understanding of God and God's ways is never to be understood as co-equal with His own. And that's a theme we're going to come back to again when we get uh, to chapter 5, okay? Um, so, speaking of, let's go to chapter 5. Oh, wait, chapter 4 first. This is the depressing chapter. So I'm going to just spend like, you know, two seconds on it. These are the issues. I'm just going to give this to you in shotgun form. All right. These are the issues that Kohelet is dealing with in chapter 4. The first few verses, he's dealing with the despair of the oppressed. A recognition that oppression is done under the sun. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed... And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So the first verse that you have here is a recognition. What Again, what is Kohelet presenting us? The dynamic and the challenge of life lived under the sun all the way back to chapter 1. And where is meaning to be found in this life? And what are the challenges toward meaning that we have living life together under the sun? And here is Kohelet, the preacher, saying, I've seen the oppressed. I've seen people who are in a position of weakness with those who have power over against them and those who have power over against them deploy that power in ways that yield, continue, and let's just use the term that's kind of bandied about in our cultural setting right now, continued systemic oppression. And I see it with my own eyes. Um, Micah chapter uh, 2 and 3 uh, bring this in as kind of illustration of this. Micah chapter 1 deals with the breaking of the first table of the law. 
because of idolatry. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What's the opposite of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Idolatry. Whether it's a political form of idolatry, trusting in other nations besides our own God, or bona fide religious idolatry. And the prophets talk about both of those from beginning to end. That's chapter 1 of Micah. But then chapter 2 and 3 of Micah is the breaking of the second table of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what Micah chapter 2 says. This is really, it's kind of stunning actually. Um, I see those who devise evil on their beds at night. So what, what, where do their imaginations go when they're alone? They, they're devising evil plans. And then when they wake up in the morning, they do it. And this is the turn of phrase that Micah uses that I think is really arresting. They do it because they have the power of God in their hands. In other words, people who have been put in these particular positions, whether it's by wealth or right or political power, they, they take a view of those that are underneath them that's really a view that belongs to God alone, never to them, and they exercise their power in ways that are tyrannical. And here Kohelet says, I see this. And when, when it comes to life under the sun, it doesn't matter where you put your finger down in the linear hit, uh, move of history from times past to times forward. You just put your finger down somewhere and within our global world or within our neighborhoods, people are being oppressed. They're, 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 they're people who are in positions of power are using those that are in positions of weakness to, to instrumentalize them and to oppress them toward their own benefit and end. And it's happening all the time. And, here's, and Kohelet says, life under the sun will never transcend that. In other words, life on this earth will never completely fix that problem because we live uh, with the reality of sin. So you have the reality of the oppressed. And then verse 2 is the despair of those who observe oppression. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evils, deeds that are done underneath the sun. And we don't even have to work very hard to see it, do we? I mean, we don't have to work hard to see within even just a quick glance at 20th century historical moments to see just horrible things. Um, apparently another... Nigerian uh, Christian woman was beheaded this week. This week by Boko Haram. Um, this kind of oppression is done under the sun. And when we see it, it and again, there, this feels a bit hyperbolic, doesn't it, what Kohelet is saying here. But what is he saying? Better for those who have never even been born than to have to enter into this world and observe that kind of thing. Now, we can inoculate ourselves from it, and I do all the time, because I, I, I believe, I mean, this is, there's a subjective side to this, but um, when, I, when I teach my, my Hebrew students, I, I use this term from the cognitive sciences called cognitive load. And I'll tell them, I said, listen, I, I know... Um, that the way that your brains work, and this is a subjective thing, but at some moment in time, you're going to uh, meet your cognitive load in this class. And when you meet your cognitive load, learning stops. It doesn't matter what I keep saying, you're, you're going off to Happyville. I know you're going to do it. And I, and I will see your eyes when they glaze over. I was one of my students this week. He, he, you'll know. Don't, don't tell him I said this. Um, but I looked at him and I said, what do you think about that? So and so he said, I don't know. I was thinking about something else. Um, <laughs> I said, well, at least, at least we're getting it out on the table here. Um, I, 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 that cognitive load thing, I think there's an analogy to that on the level of like emotional load. Um, in other words, the load that you're really, when you think about what's going on in our world, 
and you, and you try, we try to process it. Um, I mean, just think about what's going on in Nigeria right now. My colleague Jerry McDermott at Beeson was actually there uh, teaching this summer when an outbreak of religious violence occurred in the village in Jos. Um, it's stunning. We, we've had Archbishop Kwashi here. He's going to be here uh, this week, I believe, uh, for a conference at Beeson. Um, I mean, they're, they're in the middle of this. His, his wife, Gloria, who's apparently a remarkable woman, was captured by Boko Haram and, and, and horrible things. His own wife. Um, that's just in Nigeria. What's, think about South Sudan. Think about what's going on with the underground church in China. And, 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 and not just in the Christian church, in, in the world itself. Where evil runs rampant, and I do, and I know, maybe we we have a kind of emotional load where at some point we just we just turn it off. I mean, just because we, how else are we going to move forward? But this is a moment here where I think Kohelet is leaning into, and I think pressing us uh, to lean into. Well, every once in a while, we recognize that the emotional load can only go so far, but it's good to expand the corners of that load to lift our eyes beyond the ends of our own nose and our own familial dynamics to see that there are many, many people around the world, and let's just put it more closely, in our neighborhoods that are suffering and that are the object of some kind of oppression. Political oppression, medical oppression, the oppression of drug abuse, the oppression of addiction, all kinds. I mean, just think about the reach of how oppression can be understood in a much more expansive way than even just um, the abuse of particular kinds of power. And so this is this is a tough. That's why it's chapter four, not not beach reading. Um, this is tough, all right? Uh, and then he goes on to talk in the next few verses, and again, I want I want to move on shoot, um, about the importance of community and relationships. Uh, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if one falls, the other will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is all alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. That too is a kind of suffering, isn't it? For people to live in, isol in relational isolation from other humans. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. This has certainly been a large question within 20th century philosophy about the nature of selfhood. What does it mean to be a self? And part of the answers that you'll find from different philosophical voices is to be a self means to be in relationship to the other. Um, I don't know. One of the one of the areas about Bible study that I actually find challenging. Um, is the whole nation, no, notion of being made in the image of God in Genesis chapter 1 is not really a theme that the Bible itself picks up and develops. I wish it did more, but try to tra trace that out. I mean, and, and I think, by the way, that's why you have all kinds of different definitions of what it means to be made in the image of God. What, what does image bearing mean? Um, and and I'm not, this is not a final answer on that, but I just want to kind of put this to you so that you hear how Genesis presents that. And he made them in the image of God. Male and female created he them. In other words, something about the complementarity of the male-female relationship or the necessity of the other is that which reflects the image of God in social reality. Um, and that, that we could talk about this a lot because I have reservations even about what I just said, okay? But um, there's something about the dynamic of being a self in relationship to the other where our true selfhood is uh, made most present. 
Um, and again, I need to be careful here because not everyone's married, okay? And, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't want to re- reduce the church to kind of the nuclear family because God calls people to single singleness, but even in a call to singleness, is the, the necessity for communal relation is so important. Think about my, my friend, and he's come here regularly, Wesley Hill, up at uh, Trinity School for Ministry. He's written a book called Spiritual Friendship. Now, it's created all kind of buzz. But I think the point that Wesley is making is for those of us who are called to a life of celibacy in Christ's church, we need the church because we need to be in a relationship to others as well. And for those of us who are in married relationships, I think that is, that's the anvil where we get to work out what it really means to be a human person in its fullness. And that's why marriage is so hard. Right. Um, because this is, I think, where the cracks in our, in our selfhood and our identity become, become exposed is learning to be in relationship to another. Um, you know, my wife and I hung out with a, a young couple that's j- just getting married or just got married. And it's, it's just a fascinating thing to behold. It's hard, isn't it? It's a hard thing to learn uh, to live with another person. Um, and this is, I think, you know, you, you know well, anyway, I'll leave it there. We're selfhood in relationship to another. Now, chapter five, and this probably I'll be able to do today. I think chapter five, verses one uh, through six is a kind of hinge that introduces something in the book that we'll see again developed at the end of the book. The fear of God is brought to center stage again. God's transcendence, God's otherness comes into view in life of the frustration of our human view and life under the sun. And listen to what it says here. Let's read this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is hevel, smoke, vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So let's just kind of bring, there's a lot going on here. Um, and again, this, this text, too, is not a kind of hold-your-hand text. All right? Um, this is a bit of a shout. And look at verse 1. I think verse 1, the way I might describe verse 1 is uh, the call uh, to authentic worship. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And how does one guard their steps? By drawing near to listen. Now, this is a fascinating thing here, because what's going on? Listening is brought into contradistinction from um, outward ritual and sacrifice. Now, of course, you will read commentaries left and right who will say, here's Kohelet coming in and leveling a kind of 
overarching complaint against temp- the temple cult and ritual life. I don't think that's the case. Like, I don't think that's the case with the prophets when they do something very similar. Remember Isaiah chapter 58, right? Keep your sacrifices, I don't want them. Um, the book of Amos, stop sacrificing and going to church because your neighbors are oppressed. You can read those off the surface as if God is saying, I don't want your corporate worship, I don't want your, and I'll use this term carefully, but your religious ritual, keep it all. And I don't think that's what the prophets are doing, and I don't think that's what Ecclesiastes is doing either. But I think he's guarding us against what I think Karl Barth would call religion. right? And that is the human attempt to move into religious activities that are generated by human intention for the sake of um, acquitting ourselves before the divine reality. So religion is a very sort of bottom-up view of what we do when we come to church together. I'm coming together, um, I'm coming to church, I'm offering my sacrifices. Why? Um, because, you know, it's what I do, or it's how I barter with God, or it's, or it's a kind of talisman that, I, that I'm involved in. It's, it's, my, it's my outward sacrifice to check off my religious duty, and then I kind of move on into my existence. And here, uh, Kohelet is saying, when you draw near to worship, you draw near to listen. And in the Old Testament, listening and obeying are the flip side of the same thing. Oh, here's some, oh, my big chalk is here. Here you go. Shema, right? That's the Hebrew word for listen. What verse immediately comes to mind with that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's the same word that can be translated obey. There's no different word in Hebrew for listening and obeying. Right. Um, by the way, just while we're doing some Hebrew, because this is fun. <laughs> right? Um, Eved, or Avad, to serve. To worship. What you see, and again, one has to be careful with these things on the kind of etymological level. What you see here with Shema and Eved, to serve, to worship, to listen, to obey. That there's no understanding within the linguistic universe of the Old Testament to separate our worship from our service. To separate hearing the Word of God and entering into the existence of what that hearing calls us to do and to be. Um, Think James, the the book of James. Um, Don't just be hearers of the Word, but what? Doers also. Um, Think about our liturgy. Let us praise You, not only with our lips, but with our lives. We pray that prayer every time we do morning prayer together. So here, when he's saying, listen, uh, Kohelet here, the, the author to Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is tapping into a linguistic resource that's pushing on an exposed nerve. In other words, if your worship is a worship that's a kind of religious checklist that separates listening from obeying or separates service uh, from worship, I worship, that's what I do, but service is something different. In other words, our worship is tapped into a, a, a mode of being before God. That entails Monday to Saturday, right? Not just Sunday. Um, here Kohelet says, if that's not how you're thinking about worship, then just keep your sacrifices. Because they're not doing anything. 
Um, can I can I talk about this in relation to a particular? And this this sounds come across a little angular, but well, it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> but the, um, how we view the Eucharist, I think, kind of leans into this because this is our area of sacrifice, and we're not sacrificing Jesus again. That's one for all the reformational debates about the nature of Eucharist, the Eucharistic moment. Resacrifice is not a debate among anybody. That's a great, Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, Cranmer, Oclampadius. I mean, they all agreed that when you come to the Eucharistic moment, there's no re-sacrifice of Christ's person in the breaking of the bread and the, in the spilling of the wine. Um, but they all affirmed that there was some kind of sacrifice. And what's the sacrifice? It's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, a recognition that we're entering into that Eucharistic moment, the very incorporation and participation in the life of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. We're entering into the reality of His death and what He's done for us in participation. And it is mystical, powerful, and healing. Right? We're called to that. But there's always a danger, isn't there, when we recognize something like the sacrament and the mysterious character of the sacrament? There are always dangers. There are rocks to crash on. Um, and you think about some of these, right? I mean, and I, I don't know. I don't know what people's views are, but, you know, I, I, if I take, I need to take communion so that I have a better week at work. Or maybe if I take communion, you know, that, this can be the means by which God will, um, will fix the, my family dynamic or something like that. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer, but the, the, the danger of treating something like the Eucharist as an external religious ritual that's detached from the worshiping life of the congregation, I think that's a real danger. And it's why, by the way, listening when it comes to the Eucharist, it's so important that we have the preaching of the Word and the celebration of the Eucharist always together. We don't separate those the one from the other. Um, so when you see here that you go, to the, you go into the house of God, it's, you're coming to listen. And then number two, these next few verses, for verses is to keep your limitations in view. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Boy, that's not a bad t-shirt right there. All right? God is in heaven and you are on earth. What is that a call to? That's a call to, I'll use a big fancy term, epistemic humility. It's a call to a humility of the purview of our knowledge base. God's in heaven and we are not. We don't have the ability uh, to put together the fullness of God's sovereign plan in our particular moment. And I, I want to say something about this, because I, I don't know where you are. I, I, I'm trying to still get my head around some of these things. Um, I, I hope that you find, and can find at least, the notion, the, the confession that God is transcendent, God is other, God is not on some sort of chain of being, that we can build up from the material world in some sort of chain of participation back into God to figure out who God is. God is other. He's the Creator. And yet recognizing at the same time that that transcendence, His immutability, the fact that He doesn't change, which I think can come across so frightening, but the fact that God is transcendent and He's immutable, He doesn't change, and nothing from outside of God can affect the person of God in His own being. 
and that God Himself is beauty, goodness, and truth. These transcendent character traits that many religious traditions in the Western and the Eastern world affirm. Beauty, goodness, truth. That God is those things and He's the source of all those things. And you can never figure Him out completely. And that might come across, as from the first view, overwhelmingly frightening. Except for the fact that we recognize that God's transcendence is always linked to His character as the one who loves and gives Himself to His creatures in, in relationship. So that, that His transcendence and His eminence, His closeness, are never to be played off of one another. He's transcendent. He's other. He's not you. He's not me. And we can find, I think, hope in that because we find refuge in Him. And yet at the same time, He's close to us. No longer have I called you servants, Jesus said, but now I've called you what? I've called you friends. And what's the greatest indication of Jesus's, of God's imminence to us in humanity? His movement toward us in love from His transcendent otherness. He became a man. He entered into the mess and the plight of our existence and brought the mess and plight of our existence back into the very being of God in His humanity. Jesus is a man right now. Right now, He's a man. Fully God, fully man. And our salvation depends on it. That's That to me, and again, I don't know where you are on this, but increasingly, I find an enormous amount of comfort in the fact that God is transcendent. He's immutable. He's not changeable. That He holds all things together in His hands with purpose and with the ultimate goal of restoring this creation to its intended purposes. That at least gives me some scope and hope in the middle of life under the sun which is where I think Ecclesiastes will leave us, but encourage us here at the end toward the fear of God. What does it mean to live into the fear of God? I think it means something like living in the reality of the presence of God. We're living with the reality that God is. And I catch myself, and I'm sure you do, and God knows that we're flesh, He knows that we're human, He knows that we're a mess. Okay, And I'm grateful for that. So I catch myself so often sort of looking at my own life going, you know, today, I basically live this day as if God's existence didn't matter or not, right? I mean, I know that's true about my existence sometimes. I don't know about yours. Um, but, you know, today, does it matter that God exists? I mean, I think that's a challenge for us to really come clean on, that we often live lives as practical atheists. I do, right? And here's Ecclesiastes calling us to the fear of God. Well, what's the living into the fear of God? It's by God's grace, by a life of repentance, leaning again and again into the fact that He is. And a confession that He is, and He's in heaven, and we're on earth. Really, don't you think about it? I mean, that changes our perspective on everything. On everything. If He really is, and what He says is really true, then my view from the bottom up and His view from the top down, that changes how we enter into life uh, under the sun. Okay, Lord, thank you for Ecclesiastes 5. I pray that you will help us to, to believe and to find hope in your transcendence. Um, certainly part of our frustration in this world, certainly part of the vanity character of our existence is that we can't figure things out. I mean, there are aspects that we just can't, of our existence that we can't sort out. We certainly can't sort out the future. That is certainly beyond our purview. But you can. Lord, you are. And you are good. And you are beauty. And you are truth. 
And you give us these good gifts in this world to enjoy these things as a kind of species of what in time we will enjoy in its fullness. Help us, Lord, to to lean into this. And where we live like practical atheists, all of us do, myself included. I pray that you'll give us reminders and the good gifts of your own word to call us to listen, to hear, and to obey um, because you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.